0: The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. As you know, this uh, story is called uh, by most people, the Transfiguration, and uh, I don't know about you, but for me, this is one of the most confusing events in the Gospels. And I've never understood what it's meant. And uh, you know, when you've got to get and talk about it, that's not a good sign. But I've studied hard, and uh, hopefully I've learned some things that will be helpful. And there's lots of questions in this passage. Lots of things that people wrestle with, some relevant, some rather irrelevant. But um, questions like, why was Jesus hanging out with dead guys? Um, and what does that mean? Uh, somebody asked me how um, you know how did they know how did Peter know it was Moses and Elijah? Were they like wearing name tags or you know how did how did that work? Like little like sim characters, you know, they have a little bubble over their head that said Moses. I don't you know. Um, and, and a more important question is why why Moses and Elijah of all the possible people from the Old Testament that could have showed up and met with Jesus, why those two? Uh, why not, for example, Abraham and David, or Samuel and Israel, uh, you know, Jacob, or why not Moses and Isaiah? Right? Uh, questions we need to answer. And and really, most importantly, really, what is this story about? Uh, Jesus comes, he prays, he he glows in the dark. The disciples see it. They want to build him a tent, and then they it's over. Right. What does that mean? Um, What what is the meaning and significance we are to understand from this event, right? Um, I have a picture here, and actually, it's not a great picture, sorry, but um, there's one of the other questions that's totally irrelevant is what mountain this took place on. A couple of candidates are Mount Tabor and Mount uh, Hermon. I vote for Mount Hermon, which is the picture here. It's a peak that... Rises to about 9,000 feet, has snow. They actually have skiing on that mountain now. N- not in Jesus' day. Just clear on that. Uh, I, I, if, if I was to pick, I would pick uh, Hermon. There's actually some g- good reasons why that is a likely place. Um, so as we look at this story, um, really it's important to see it in its context. And the context here is that Jesus has been um, up really to this point in Luke... Uh, demonstrating through his words and through his actions who he is. And the question has come up several times, who is Jesus? And then finally Jesus uh, asked that himself of the disciples. He said, who do the crowds say that I am? And they said, well, some say Elijah, some say uh, one of the other prophets, some say John the Baptist. And Jesus says, yeah, but who do you say that I am? And uh, in Jesus' school of ministry, for the disciples to really be Effective in doing the ministry that Jesus was called was calling them to, that was a really important question to answer. Who is Jesus? And of course, Peter correctly answers, more than the crowd. You're not just a prophet; you are the Messiah, uh, which was true. But uh, clearly, the disciples did not understand the fullness of what that meant, and so Jesus begins to explain and unpack what the Messiah was because it's different than what they understood. And he says the Messiah, it's true, but uh, the Messiah must uh, be rejected by the leaders of Israel. Uh, he must be killed, in fact, by the leaders of Israel. He will then rise again after three days. Uh, the disciples wrestled until actually till after the cross, understanding and grasping what Jesus was saying and what he meant by that, that he was he, he was speaking more plain than he ever did that dying means dying and uh, rising again means coming back to life uh, so Jesus is, is in, uh, teaching this message and on top of that it's clear that if, if that's what the Messiah meant uh, one who would give his life that following him also uh, was not going to be the kingdom life that they had envisioned it, it was not going to be a future day of glory where uh, Jesus is going to overthrow Rome And they were all going to get fancy houses and mansions and live the good life. In fact, quite the opposite. Jesus said, you must deny yourself. You must take up your cross and follow me. Uh, Living very much the same kind of sacrificial, uh, selfless life that I am living and giving my life for you. Um, And at the end of that section uh, that we looked at last week as Jesus is... Um, explaining to them what what it means for him to be Messiah, Jesus says these very interesting words. He says, I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the kingdom of God. So Jesus makes a a very interesting promise. He says among the twelve that were with him right then, he said, I tell you, some of you are going to live long enough to see the kingdom of God come in. Well, what exactly did Jesus mean by that? Uh, and there's a lot of debate on uh, when that was fulfilled or, or if it's yet to be fulfilled. And one, one answer would be, well, Jesus was speaking there of his second coming. When Jesus would return and he would set up his kingdom as they anticipated. The only problem with that view is that Jesus said you wouldn't die. And they're all pretty much dead, right? Two thousand years have gone by. They're about as dead as it gets. So that can't be the option. Right, because Jesus would have, um, well, he would have lied. He would have told a prophecy that was not true, so that can't be it. So other options, uh, one would be that, uh, that when Jesus died, he rose again, and at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is poured out, that that really was the coming of the kingdom. As Jesus accomplished his work on the cross, he uh, ushered in through the Holy Spirit the kingdom, and certainly uh, all of the disciples except for Judas would have been alive uh, at and, and part of Pentecost. But Luke actually understood it even differently yet. And I think there's some truth, and we'll kind of see uh, that piece of it in a bit. But Luke clearly sees this prophecy fulfilled in the Transfiguration. And Luke gives us some great clues. First of all, he puts these two accounts right next to each other. He doesn't separate it at all. So Jesus says this, the very next thing that happens is what? The transfiguration. So uh, Luke's arrangement of it, and along with the other gospel writers, connect it with this statement. Secondly, uh, Luke, Luke writes this. He says, about eight days later, uh, right after Jesus said these things. Right? So eight days after Jesus said these things, and so Luke very deliberately connects the account of the transfiguration with the seeing of God's kingdom. And so in Luke's mind, uh, what's happening here in the transfiguration. It's a fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy, at least at some level. In some way, they are getting a glimpse of the kingdom. So the, the question, the really big question for us then is, um, you know, what, what was in this event that that was the kingdom, right? What, what did they see in the transfiguration that was the kingdom? Uh, was it uh, a bunch of dead guy, a couple of dead guys coming back in their glorified form. Well, certainly that seems like that would indicate the kingdom, heaven, you know, right? Uh, could be that. Um, could it be Jesus, a uh, radiant with the splendor of eternity? Some future glimpse of what Jesus would be when he rose and ascended to heaven? Uh, possible. But the, here's the problem with that. If the kingdom of God is dead people in eternal glory and others glowing in the dark, then I have not seen the kingdom yet. <laughs> how many of you have seen dead people in their glory? Anybody? Because okay. they, they, they have special doctors for you, actually. Um, how many of you have seen people glowing in the dark, right? Like Jesus did. Yeah, Tom has. I would expect that from Tom. <laughs> it's, not, it's not... If the kingdom of God depends on a light show then I would have to say, I have not seen the kingdom of God, right? Because I've, I've never seen that, uh, and probably most of us haven't. So what exactly did they see in this event that was the kingdom, right? Well, let's look at it and see if we can answer that question, because that's really the question. Luke says, uh, Jesus says, you'll see the kingdom. In the transfiguration, Luke implies that that's fulfilled. What does that mean? Um, The story starts, uh, it says, eight days later, uh, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and went up to uh, the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothes became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. Uh, And they appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish. Uh, Throughout the, the Gospel of Luke, every time Jesus is about to do something Significant in the lives of his disciples, it's introduced with prayer, and it's a great picture of Jesus moving forward his ministry with the disciples through prayer. Uh, Jesus taught them, he called them, he uh, directed them, he sent them, he equipped them for ministry. But every time, each step of the way, as he sees they need to go deeper into the truth, he begins that process by praying for them. Uh, Jesus was the living word of God and he taught them, but he never counted on his teaching alone to move them into deeper truth. Uh, he always began with prayer. And if Jesus needed to do that, uh, how much more do we? Right? If we want to see disciples made, if we want to see people equipped, uh, it's not just our teaching and our clever and uh, bright, brilliant minds that will disciple them. It must begin with prayer. And Jesus, each step moves forward ministry through prayer. And as Jesus prays, uh, it's a great picture. What happens here is a great picture of really, I think, what prayer is. Uh, For prayer, for Jesus, prayer was always entering into God's presence. It was coming before the throne of his father and drawing near to him. And uh, we get a glimpse of that here in the transfiguration as Jesus prays. Uh, you know, he, he is, is in a sense transported into the heavenly realm and in this picture we see, we see that happening as uh, the saints of, of heaven start um, popping up in the scene right? and it's a great picture of what prayer is prayer is not simply uh, sending God an email of our requests although in some sense it is that it's not simply petitioning God with the things we need Ultimately, prayer is drawing into God's presence. And we see Jesus do that, uh, entering into the very uh, presence of heaven uh, before the Father. And as he does that, uh, he is transformed. Uh, and his, uh, from the very in, inner parts of his being, he becomes radiant with glory. And as his face becomes other, Jesus uh, radiates um, the glory of the eternal, As he draws into God's presence, as he prays with the Father, as he enters the heavenly realm. And it's a great picture of that. Uh, Now, you know, I can't promise that if you really learn the art of prayer, you'll have this happen to you, literally. But it is what should happen to us in a very real sense. Prayer is drawing into the Father, and it's transforming. It ought to change the very character of our face and our nature. And... uh, Moses standing by reminds us of, of how this happened with Moses and if you remember as Moses went up on the mountain and, and stood in God's presence he came down off the mountain and what happened to his face it also was radiant with the glory of God and he had to wear a veil because the people could not look on his face and that's that should be happening in our life as we pray as we draw into the presence of God it should be transforming our very countenance and nature it should be making us... Uh, radiant with the glory of God. And so it is a great picture of prayer. And and it deserves a whole sermon just on that alone. But we're going to move on uh, to the bigger meaning of the passage. Uh, And it says that as Jesus is praying, Moses and Elijah appear, also in a glorified state or form. Uh, So the question is, and one of the things that will help us understand this passage, is why these two guys... What's significant and important about Moses and Elijah that they appear in this scene, in, the, in this context, in the setting of God revealing the kingdom? Well, um, some of the common answers uh, are that, uh, that they represent the law and the prophets. And that's usually the most common answer given. Moses, of course, was the one who... Uh, received the law from God on Mount Sinai, on Mount Horeb, and he wrote it down and he delivers it to Israel. Uh, he's attributed uh, as writing the Pentateuch. So he represents the law, the old covenant uh, that God instituted with Israel as a nation. Uh, that makes sense. Uh, and, and so Elijah is, is considered to be the representative of the prophets. And certainly Elijah was a prophet. Uh, and uh, if oftentimes the New Testament refers to the Old in its whole as the Law and the Prophets. So the understanding of this would be that Jesus um, kind of draws into and he's there with uh, with the whole Old Testament, you know, the Law and the Prophets. Uh, the problem with this view, though, is that I, I don't like it. <laughs> and here's why. Uh, not that my opinion matters, but... Uh, Moses makes sense. You know, Moses, is the author of the law, it makes perfect sense. But Elijah is not a great representative for the prophets. Uh, and the main reason is that Ro- uh, Elijah didn't write anything down. Right? You think of all the prophets in the books of the prophets. Uh, has anybody read the, the book of Elijah? Right? Not there, right? None of his sermons are written. Elijah didn't write anything down. So if we wanted to represent the written uh, body of sermons of the prophets, we wouldn't pick Elijah. We'd pick, you know, like Isaiah or Jeremiah, somebody who actually wrote down what he preached. Right. So uh, Elijah is kind of a strange choice for that. And even if we say, even if we say, well, yeah, but still he represents the prophets. What does that really mean? What what about the prophet's message is relevant about Elijah? Well, if he's just representing generically the prophets, that doesn't really help us much. So we need we need a better answer, a better explanation. Another option is that we can think about Moses and Elijah as the beginning and the end of God's saving work. And what we mean by that, Moses is uh, he's the beginning of scripture, uh, not because he was around at Genesis, but because he wrote it. Uh, he's attributed as the author of the first five books of the Bible. So he's the beginning of God's saving work and program. And um, beyond Genesis, uh, Moses is the primary actor in Exodus. And when God chooses to rescue his people, Israel, out of, out of slavery in Egypt, Moses is the, is the deliverer. And he's the one who really initiates at every level God's saving work with Israel. And, of course, there were covenants that God made with Abraham and others before that. But Moses is the one who really launches fully God's saving work in the Exodus and in the giving of the law. So, in many sense, Moses is the beginning. Uh, So, Moses is the beginning. How is Elijah the end? And you may be going, ah, Elijah cannot be the end because he was not even close to the last prophet. In fact, Elijah was actually one of the earlier prophets long before the exile, long before Isaiah or Jeremiah or others. So how could Elijah possibly be the last word? Well, uh, Bible Trivia Time, what's the last book of the Old Testament? Malachi, Malachi, Uh, Malachi, right. Uh, Here's the last words of Malachi, okay? The last uh, chapter... The last word of the Old Testament. And uh, to be fair, if you were to read the Hebrew Bible, this would not be the last word because the Hebrew Bible ends with the book of Chronicles. However, uh, whether however you arrange the books, this is still the last word. Even in the Hebrew Bible, this was the last recorded revelation of God in the Old Testament for 400 years before Christ comes. And this is what it says. For behold, the day is coming, the day of the Lord. Okay, the the great day when God will come at the end to bring final judgment and restoration to the earth. That's what He means by the day. The day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. Right. The day is coming. Um, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze. Okay. So the wicked will be like like dried straw that will be set on fire. Says the Lord of Hosts so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Clearly a messianic prophecy is pointing to Christ. Right, The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, uh, pointing to Jesus as the Messiah. And you will go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the sole of your feet. On that day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses. Okay, so we got Moses in, in, named and the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, right? I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, right? Uh, So what's that about? The last word of the Old Testament says, uh, Moses and the law will endure. uh, But at that last great and final day, God's going to send uh, a son, one who will bring healing, who will bring restoration, who will bring judgment, who will bring fire on the wicked and restoration on the righteous. And Elijah will go before him, preparing the way, right? And, of course, uh, Luke actually um, quotes this passage in the fulfillment uh, uh, pointing to John the Baptist as Elijah. He says, he will go before him, speaking of John the Baptist, he will go before him, the, the anointed one, in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. A quote from Malachi chapter 4. Uh, interesting, Matthew, Matthew puts it this way, speaking of John the Baptist. John the Baptist Uh, John says this of himself, I will baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with, you know, fire, fire. Uh, Notice what this fire does. His winnowing fork is in his hands and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff, the straw, he will burn with unquenchable fire, right? So what's that about? Well, uh, the last word of the Old Testament is about Elijah pointing the way to the great day of the Lord when God will return and he will restore everything. Now, of course, in the Old Testament, vision of that saw that as one great event that would happen all at once. Uh, we know now that Jesus actually came in two parts, right? The first part was his saving work on the cross But we look forward to his second coming when he will fulfill the final prophecies of Malachi. And in both of those fulfillments, the forerunner to that is Elijah. So in that sense, Moses is the beginning and Elijah is the end. And in the the center of God's saving work. So God began his saving work with Moses and the Exodus. God will end his great saving plan at the final day of judgment. Uh, somewhere in the future with the second coming of Christ. And centered in the very middle of all that is who? Jesus, right? You've got Jesus with Moses and Elijah, the beginning and the end, and the center of it is the work of Christ on the cross. Great picture of the gospel as the saving work of God from beginning to end. right? And so that's pictured here in the Transfiguration, I believe. Um, but there's more, Okay. Real briefly, uh, Moses and Elijah also represent the great messianic hope. We don't have time to go into it or don't need to a lot. But just real quickly, um, where did the idea of Messiah come from? Well, it came most clearly from two key sources. The first was Moses. Uh, And and in fact, uh, they looked for a second Moses. And it comes from Deuteronomy 18 where Moses writes, our God will will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. Does that sound familiar? It should because in just a moment, God's going to speak these exact words. And in fact, Luke, when he writes out the words, quotes Deuteronomy 18 word for word. You must listen to him. For this is what yourselves requested of the Lord your God when you were assembled at Mount Sinai. Don't let us hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore or see this blazing fire or we will die. Then the Lord said to me, what you, they have said is right. I will raise up a prophet like you, like Moses, from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. Israel were, was looking for a messianic prophet in the order of Moses right? uh, from Deuteronomy 18. Secondly, we've already talked quite a bit about this. Um, Malachi 4 and other passages point to one who will come for whom Elijah would be the forerunner. So the great messianic hope that the Israelites lived with is attributed back to these two guys. So it makes sense that they would be there. The question is, who's Jesus? And uh, the, uh, Peter rightly answers, he's the Messiah. And so at the transfiguration, God is, in a sense, confirming that answer. He's saying, yes, you are right. And he puts Moses and Elijah alongside Jesus to say, if there's any two guys in the whole Old Testament who could be witnesses to the Messiah, it would be these guys. If we want to have a court, courtroom setting and we want to call witnesses and ask, is this the Messiah? These two guys were the most vocal, uh, clear witnesses to the Messianic hope. And so it makes sense that they would be there as witnesses to Jesus as Messiah. Last thing, though, there's one more interesting connection between Moses and Elijah. And this one, for me, is the, the most fun. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, God appeared to people in many forms, in visions and in dreams, and he spoke to them often. So it wasn't unusual for God to to communicate and reveal himself to Old Testament characters. But the most, um, the most direct form of those is what we call a theophany. Right? It was a big fancy word that just means... God takes on some kind of human form, and oftentimes it's called the angel of the Lord. And in those appearances, God was very much human. And of course, he wasn't flesh and blood like Jesus, but he took on a shape and form like a man. And uh, so when Abraham has the angels visit him, we, we discover that one of those angels, one of those men, is God himself appearing through a theophany. But there's only two accounts in Scripture, in Old Testament, that I know of, where God appears face-to-face with uh, with someone, not through a theophany, not through a dream, not through a vision, but through a direct personal encounter face-to-face with God. Who are those two guys? Well, Moses and Elijah. And interestingly, they both have those encounters where? On Mount Sinai, right? On Mount Horeb. Uh, Moses uh receives the Ten Commandments, goes back down, the people are sinning, they've created a golden calf. Moses breaks the tablets. God wants to wipe out the Israelites. Moses intercedes and says, bad idea, <laughs> don't do that. And God relents. And, uh, but God says, I will not go with them. If I go with them, surely I will wipe them out. And Moses says, God, if you don't go with us, don't send, us, don't send me out there. Because I'm not going, I'm not doing this without you. Right? And so God finally relents and he says, okay, I will go with you. And Moses has one more request. He says, well, if that's true, then I want you to make your glory appear to me. I want to see your glory. And God says, okay, I will do that. And he sends Moses up on the mountain. And if you remember, Moses hides in the cleft of the rock and the glory of God passes by. Veiled, right, not the full glory. He says, you cannot see my face or you will die. But he gives a glimpse behind the curtain of the glory of God in a direct encounter with God's presence. Right? Uh, Elijah, a very similar story. He uh, goes to battle. He has a, a duel with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And he wins, right? Kills 400 prophets of Baal. That should be a good day. He should be happy, happy, happy. Excited. Celebrating. But what happens to Elijah? He is depressed. And he goes off into the wilderness and wants to kill himself. Well, why would you be so sad after such a great victory? Well, because he beat the prophets, but it didn't change the hearts of Israel. They still were committed and stubborn and determined to follow Baal. And they did not return to worship the true and living God. And Elijah's like, what is the use? After that, they still won't turn. So he sat in depressed. And so what does he do? He goes on a 40-day excursion through the wilderness to Mount Sinai, to Mount Horeb. And he goes up and he encounters God there. And God meets him face to face and God speaks with him. Um, hang on to that thought, because I think it will help us understand what this passage is about. Ultimately, these are two guys that had encountered God directly, face to face, experiencing God's presence uh, on Mount Horeb. Right? Uh, we'll come back to that, but let's, let's move on through the passage briefly. So after that, it says, And behold, the two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, and they appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish or fulfill in Jerusalem. Literally, and I like uh, the New Living actually got this one right. Uh, literally, what it says there is he was talking to them about his exodus. In fact, the Greek word that we get the Old Testament book Exodus from is the Greek word exodus, which means the road out. That's literally what it means, right? Um, Luke alone uses that word here. The other gospel writers use other words. And the fact that Luke uses it draws great importance and significance to that word. Uh, And Jesus doesn't say that he's just going to go away. He says he's going to accomplish or fulfill his exodus in Jerusalem. What is that about? Well, uh, I really believe that Jesus is talking here clearly about what he was going to do at, at, at Jerusalem to affect his deliverance of people from the bondage of sin. Moses effected the first exodus, bringing the people out of Egypt. Jesus is now going to bring a new exodus, bring deliver, God's deliverance to people from uh, the bondage of sin and death. And he does that. Notice the events that happen all at Jerusalem. The cross, the resurrection... The ascension and ultimately the second coming are all events that will take place at, Jer- at Jerusalem. And it's really a picture of God's complete Jesus, complete work of a new exodus where we find deliverance through the work of Christ on the cross. Um, Jesus is talking with Moses and Elijah about a new road to a new kingdom, right? a new work of God that will bring his salvation to lost people. And I would love to have heard what that conversation was about, you know, between Jesus and Moses and Elijah, what they talked about. Um, But they were discussing those things and what that new exodus would be. And one of the reasons that we don't know what they said is because, as it says in verse 32, Peter and those with him were asleep. (laughs) Of all the times not to be paying attention, Right? Peter and James and John are asleep. So they missed the whole conversation. Right? I'm going to smack those guys when I get to heaven. You know, pay attention. Right? We don't know what the conversation was because they slept through it. But when they became fully awake um, and saw his glory and the two men who stood with him, uh, and as the, the men were parting, they were getting ready to leave, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we are here. Let's make three shelters, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Um, Perhaps this is more your experience of prayer, (laughs) Uh, you know, falling asleep. This was like the disciples. This is how they prayed, you know. Uh, They prayed mostly unconsciously. And maybe there is some value in that. Um, They wake up and and, uh, to this incredible scene. Jesus radiant with glory. Moses and Elijah there, however, they knew who they were. It was evident quickly that that's who they were. And somehow they recognized them. And Peter, uh, this, this, this is like a bolt, this is better than coffee, but better than Red Bull, right? This is like a jolt of adrenaline. Wow, this is cool, right? And uh, you can imagine, I mean, you know, if you're praying and you fall asleep and all of a sudden you wake up and, and you know, there's like Moses and Elijah right there. And Jesus, wouldn't you be just a little charged? Well, Peter was. And Peter, when he gets charged, he just starts talking. Right? That's what he does. And he doesn't have to make sense. He just blabbers away. And he wants to build uh, a shelter for them. And, and Luke adds the, this detail that they're getting up to leave. They're packing their bags. They're you know, putting their coats on. They're starting to say goodbye. And Peter's going, wait, no, 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 no. I'll, I'll build you a tent. So we can all hang out, I'll make tea, we'll sit, we'll talk. You know, this, this is going to be good. And certainly Peter's incentive motive here is he doesn't want this to end. He slept through the whole deal and, and he wants to make up for lost time. So he builds some shelters. Um, what, what was it about this that was foolish? It says that Peter has no clue what he's talking about. There's something in error about what Peter is saying here. Well, what is his error? Uh, is it that, uh, was it somehow wrong for him to uh, to want to extend this time with them? Uh, is, he, is he at fault for wanting to engage Moses and Elijah in conversation? Uh, was there some error in that? Uh, was it misguided of him to want to provide shelter and shade for them? Um, or uh, was it wrong for him to want to enter into dialogue with these heroes of the faith? Well, certainly none of those things were wrong. And it was, it was not misguided for him to desire to extend this, time, this visit with them. Uh, what was the problem, though? Well, what's interesting is that, and I think this is where Peter's error was, um, he got super excited when Moses and Elijah showed up because he saw them as superstars, Right? I mean, granted, dead guys have been dead for a long time. It's a big deal, right? And he gets super excited and he wants to do something for them special. And there's a sense in which, in Peter's efforts and in his comments, he does what? Well, he puts Jesus on an equal plane with Moses and Elijah. That was a mistake. (laughs) That was a mistake. Because... uh, Moses and Elijah were not the real superstar, right? He still did not get who Jesus really was. And he reveals it by his comments here. You know, the real, the real thing is, why had not Peter offered to build a shelter for Jesus in the first place, right? Uh, because to Peter, Jesus was just the master teacher guy. He was their Cub Scout leader, not the eternal God of the universe, And so he gets excited about Moses and Elijah when he should have been far more excited about Christ. That's what he missed. That's why he did not know what he was talking about. And we know that because God shows up to fix the problem, right? And it says in verse 34, And as he was saying these silly things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid, they were terrified as they entered the cloud. I find this really interesting. Throughout Scripture, um, when, when Jesus does these events that display him as God, it's repeatedly followed by a response of terror and awe and fear by those who see it. Right? Uh, it's interesting that when, when Peter saw Moses and Elijah, he didn't have that response. Right? There was no sense of awe or dread or fear at the presence of Moses and Elijah, even though you know, they were dead, and it was pretty impressive, but it wasn't fearful. But the cloud comes, and it's interesting, Luke says that you know, Peter wanted to make a, a shade for them, but the cloud comes and overshadows them. And what is the cloud? Well, the cloud is God. It is Father God in His presence and His glory. And they sense the awe and wonder of it because they are instantly terrified as the cloud envelops them. And they sense now something dreadful and awful and terrible. And out of the cloud comes this voice saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. But God doesn't say, Yeah, let's have a party for all three. Okay? Moses and Elijah disappear. Right? And God says, Forget Moses and Elijah. Right? This is about Jesus, my son the one I have sent from heaven, the one who bears my very nature in being. I chose him as the Messiah. Listen to him. And certainly the context of that listening is is all that Jesus is beginning to teach them about the cross and about his exodus that will bring deliverance for all of them. Um, They find themselves standing in God's presence, right? That's what the cloud is about. It is the same cloud that Moses experienced when he was on Mount Horeb and the same presence that Elijah experienced when he was on Mount Horeb. And now Peter, James, and John are encountering the direct glory of God veiled in the cloud, right? And that, that glorious presence is pointing to Christ, as the one who will bring their exodus, the one who will make it possible for them to come into his presence. Um, So we come back to the question, the big question. Um, What did they see that was God's kingdom? That's the question we have to answer. What about this event displayed the kingdom of God? Well, I believe it was simply this. Um, they get a sneak preview of the kingdom. But it's not Moses and it's not Elijah. It's not even Jesus uh, necessarily because he's radiant with glory, right? Uh, Because Jesus didn't change, even though he was kind of glowing. He was not transformed in prayer like we were. They just saw who he really was for a moment. Um, One of the mistakes we have is that often we think God's kingdom is going to be a glorious light show. And it's true, at the second coming, it will be. right? Nobody's going to miss that one. And when Jesus comes in the second coming, it will be spectacular. And there will be lots of dead people, and they're all going to be glory, glowing. right? And it's going to be awesome. But is that the essence of his kingdom? Well, no. What is the essence of the kingdom of God? Well, this story tells us this. It is simply this. It is coming into the cloud of God's presence. That's what it means to be in God's kingdom. That we, unlike Moses... So Moses and Elijah came and experienced God's presence once in a lifetime. Once in a lifetime. But the message here is that, look, through Jesus, through the exodus that he's bringing, through the cross through the outpouring of his Holy Spirit at Pentecost, every person who follows Christ and knows him now can live continually in God's presence. Right? Amazing. When you came to Christ and you received him, God's spirit was poured out on you. Right? His spirit dwells and lives in you. And morning, noon, and night, whether you're asleep like Peter or not, You are living in the presence of God. That is God's kingdom. God's kingdom can never be any more than that. Uh, Now, certainly there will come a time when we will experience it more, but it will never be more than the glorious presence of God. Uh, Heaven is nothing if heaven is not the, the place where God's glorious presence dwells. And it means nothing to us unless we enter into that place where we love to be in his presence. So, do you see the kingdom of God? Well, if you're in Christ, you should every day. You should experience the kingdom of God every day as God's presence comes to you and dwells with you. Um, And it's not particularly radiant, right? It's not particularly spectacular because it's in the universe of our soul, not the universe of this material world, where God unfolds his glory in us. Well, it ends this way. It says, and when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they were silent. Uh, In the end, the message is very clear God's kingdom comes through Christ alone, right? Through his work alone. It is not through Moses, it is not through the law that we enter his kingdom. It's not through Elijah that, and the prophets that we enter his kingdom. It's ultimately through Christ. And Christ is the centerpiece of God's saving work from, from, from the Exodus in the Old Testament to the fulfillment of the day of the Lord in the future. It is all in Christ. And we enter into his kingdom through Christ. And in spite of the significance of this event, all three disciples were stunned with silence. Uh, And God's presence should have that effect on us. And as we close, just a couple of quick um, ways that we can apply this. First of all, you know, salvation is in Christ alone. We need to be focused on Him alone as the way through which we come into God's kingdom. Uh, Through the cross, through the resurrection, through his ascension, and through his second coming. Um, Secondly, are we living life in the kingdom? In other words, are we living with the the intentional goal of doing life in God's presence? So, like, for example, let's take prayer. Is prayer for you mostly about uh, dumping your wish list on God? He calls us to do that, you know, do that. But is that really the ultimate of what prayer is? Or for you, is prayer ultimately about coming into God's presence and sitting at, uh, at, at his feet, right, and listening to him, worshiping him, uh, coming into the cloud of unknowing? Um, what can we do and what do we need to do this week in our life to make our, our quiet times times of seeking His presence and experiencing God in our life. Um, Secondly, um, lastly, uh, to do that takes quiet and still. Uh, Maybe one of the reasons we're so unaware of God's presence in our life is because we're running around so crazy busy. I love that when the cloud lifted... And I can just picture the mountains, the mountaintop, it's quiet. Uh, and I've had this happen where the, the sun comes, I mean, the clouds come and block the sun for a moment. And in, in just a second, the cloud moves away and the light comes back out. And I can just picture that was what they experienced. All of a sudden, they're just back out and it's just daylight, it's just Jesus, no more glowing in the dark people. And But they know they have been in the presence of God. And they stand quiet and still in awe of that moment, right? Um, what, are we, what are we doing to be still and quiet before God so that we can encounter Him? You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Let's pray.